0: We've held this final verse of John's first letter to deal with by itself, for no other reason than it demands a considerable amount of thought. This letter does not end the way you would expect a New Testament letter to end. It doesn't conclude with a doxology, right? It's not a, a statement of praise of the Lord. It doesn't end with a, sort of statement of grace be with you like Paul ends Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians or Peter ends his letters. It doesn't end with specific people to greet like Paul ends Romans or even John ends his other two letters that way. And it's not a personal ending like 2 Timothy where Paul said, you know, don't don't forget to come quickly and bring my coat and my books. It ends in a way that has been a puzzle to theologians for centuries, with the Apostle John making the letter's only reference to a problem that has not even been specifically discussed through the letter. 1 John 5, verse 21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Our goal this morning is going to be to deal with verse 21 topically. So let's ask the Lord for. His guidance. Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning that in your mercy you have withheld your wrath from us that we deserve and in your grace you have given to us eternal life that we don't deserve. We know Father that these blessings come to us only through your perfect son Jesus. Please turn our hearts so that we love him as we ought. As we seek to honor you through your word, we ask that you would please fulfill your promise that you've made, that it would not return to you void, that it would accomplish your purpose. And our desire this morning is for you to use your word to make us sober, make us serious about our love and worship. Please use it to give us clarity that we would see ourselves the way that you see us. And then it would renew within us a commitment to express our love for the Lord Jesus in all the things that we do. Please help us to that end and forgive us of our sins. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. If I can get away with... Quoting two Presbyterians right off the bat, R.C. Sproul said that idolatry is the most basic sin found through the whole word. And John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The sin of idolatry dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve raised their own desires up over the command of what God himself said. And it continued in their son Cain, who brought an offering to the Lord out of the harvest of his crops, essentially asserting his his own desires for, for how and, and what he wanted to worship. The sin of idolatry continued in every human heart right up until the time that Yahweh spoke from above Mount Sinai and issued the first Two of his ten commandments. And here's what he says in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5. The first two commandments. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourselves down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What was the response of the people to God's command? Well, you don't even get out of the book of Exodus before they decided that, well, you know, Moses has been gone too long. We haven't seen him in a while. And in response, they collected a bunch of jewelry and they melted it down to form into a golden calf to worship. When Moses did return, he was perplexed at such behavior and, and filled with a kind of righteous indignation as well as confusion of why they'd done this. And he, he asked his brother Aaron, why have you done such a thing? And Aaron's response was, well, the people said they didn't know what happened to you and they asked me to make them a god. So here's actually what he says in Exodus thirty two twenty four: I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire and there came out this calf. Really, all I did was threw the gold into the fire and voila, this calf came out. This has to be forces that are beyond my control, right? Such are the lengths of stupidity that people will stoop to to excuse their expressions of idolatry. This morning, we're going to look at idolatry from a topical perspective. And by that, I mean, we're going to examine several biblical texts in order to observe what's called the analogy of scripture, right? The totality of biblical teaching, so that we'll have a con- the context necessary to grasp John's conclusion to his letter, where he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. To do that, we're going to examine idolatry in Old Testament history, idolatry in the New Testament world, and idolatry among the saints. So in idolatry in Old Testament history, let's just begin by admitting we are not going to discuss every biblical text there is that deals with idolatry. There would simply be too much for us to grasp and you'd spend the whole morning, turning to different passages of Scripture. So let me just remind you of a few instances which I'm sure you're familiar with. In the book of Genesis, when Jacob and Rachel left her family's home, she could not bear the idea of leaving idolatry behind, and so she stole her family's idols, her family's gods, to take with her. Right, she was at that moment being blessed by Yahweh, and she wanted her powerless little idols anyway. Later, the Egyptians who took the Hebrews into slavery, the Egyptians worshipped uh, all manners of false gods, and Yahweh judged all of those gods through the plagues that he poured out on Egypt. So, for example, there was an Egyptian goddess named Heket who was a a woman with a frog's head is how she was represented. Well, Yahweh covered the entire land of Egypt in dead, stinking frog corpses. Ra, the sun god, could not keep the Lord from making the sky go black through all of Egypt. The Lord proved his infinite superiority over false idols, and yet the Hebrews wanted to go back to idolatry anyway. In First Samuel 5, the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen by the Philistines and They take the Ark of the Covenant and they set it next to this big statue of their false idol Dagon. They had this huge idol, huge statue of Dagon. And two mornings in a row, they wake up and they come out to find that their big statue of Dagon had fallen down on its face before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they kept just propping it back up because they wanted to worship Dagon anyway. In First Kings 18, the prophet Elijah stood by himself in a contest against the, the priests of Baal. And those priests of Baal spent the morning screaming and dancing and jumping up and down and ultimately cutting themselves as those 400 prophets of Baal just begged Baal to answer. After... Sufficient time went by, Elijah mocked them and then simply prayed and Yahweh sent down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, proving that Yahweh alone answers prayer and yet the people went on worshiping Baal anyway. We could recount story after story like that. Scripture as a whole presents idolatry as a kind of insanity. Insanity in which Yahweh has revealed himself as God alone, as all-powerful, and people still prefer idols of their own making. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. I want you to hear the claim of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, here's, here is the claim of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, that is Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. He is the ruling king. He is the God of armies. He is the eternal beginning and end, and there is no deity in heaven except God alone. Right? He says, beside me, there is no God. He's it. Other than him, there is no God. There is only one throne in heaven, and there is not a whole pantheon of deities playing musical chairs with that throne. God alone sits on the throne. And the Lord has done all that's necessary in order to prove that to be true, and now this is yahweh 's claim, so what's mankind's response to it? Well, look down at verse thirteen we're going to read verses thirteen through twenty of isaiah forty four The carpenter stretches out his rule or his ruler he marks it out with a line, he fits it with planes, and he marks it out with the compass, and makes it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He hews him down cedars, and takes the cypress and the yoke which he stretches or which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants an ash, and the rain does nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself Yea, he kindles it and bakes bread. Yes, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down thereto. He burns part thereof in the fire. The part thereof, he eat, with the part thereof, he eats flesh. He roasts his roast and is satisfied. Yes, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the residue thereof. He makes a god, even his graven image. He falls down unto it and worships it and prays unto it and says, "'Deliver me, for you are my God. "'They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see "'and their hearts that they cannot understand.'" And none considers in his heart. Neither is their knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in a fire. Yes, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feeds on ashes, A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is God's description of the insanity of idolatry. You cut down a tree, a tree which, by the way, only Yahweh himself could make grow, you use half of it to make a fire so that you can be warm and, and cook your roast, and you use the other half to whittle a little idol. And then you bow down to the idol and say, "Save me, you're my God. Not a God that made you, but a God of your own making. And you can't grasp the insanity of it. What if like, what if like you burned the wrong half of the tree? What if the God was in the other part? A heart so deceived, he says, you cannot bring yourself to say, this thing in my right hand is a lie. It is nothing but self-deception. The Lord delivered his people. He brought them miraculously out of bondage. He placed them in a land that he'd promised them. And in the process, he gave them the simple command. Do not worship the lifeless idols of the people around you. You're going to live in a land surrounded by idolatry, but you're not to take part in it. And yet knowing that, knowing that he is the idol judging Red Sea parting, walls of Jericho demolishing Yahweh who thundered down from the mountaintop of Mount Sinai and promises judgment on all idolatry, they worshiped idols anyway. Anyway. The Lord's diagnosis is that such behavior is crazy. It's insane. The problem isn't the wood of the tree or the gold that was thrown into the fire. The problem is much deeper. In Ezekiel 14, God takes the prophet Ezekiel and explains to him why God's people are in captivity. And God tells him in Ezekiel 14.3, these men have set up idols in their heart. So what Rachel snuck out of her father's house, what the Philistines kept propping back up, what, what Aaron molded from the fire, the Old Testament explains it with clarity. Those idols are symptoms of a deeper problem. Those idols are symptoms of a problem within their hearts. That's idolatry in the Old Testament history. Idolatry in the New Testament world, by the time the New Testament opens, we have some hope for a cure. Now surprisingly, you can go through the gospels and you'll find it says surprisingly little if anything overt about idols or idolatry although there's plenty implied through a little bit of study we understand in Matthew 16 that Jesus was far north outside of Israel up in a Gentile area at a place known as the gates of Hades when he taught about his church and he said I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it Jesus came to save his people from the sin of idolatry. He's the only one who's worthy of our worship. Each of those idols that was carved into an animal or a fish or a bird, all of them claiming to be representations of deity, some kind of image of God, falls so short of Jesus because Jesus is himself the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is the express Image of God's person. He is God come in the flesh. He is worthy of worship. He lived in perfect righteousness for us, displaying for us what the rejection of idolatry looks like. He was tempted by Satan. Right? Saints, simply simply bow down to me. Bow down to what's not God and all the world can be yours. Right? You can gain the whole world without the cross. And Jesus' response was, get thee hence, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That message of freedom obtained through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for us That message is the gospel and it needs to be spread throughout the world because for all the centuries that passed between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the world we find was still lost in idolatry. To see an example of it, look at Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, the city of Athens was the philosophical center of the ancient world. The the people who were considered the wisest of all men lived there. And when Paul arrived, he walked through the city by himself. He walked through the marketplaces. He heard the speakers. He he saw the intricate paintings on the porticos. And and on virtually every corner, he witnessed outright idolatry. Acts seventeen. Verse 16 says, Now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. His spirit was stirred in him. He was grieved by what he saw. They had so many altars to so many gods. They had even, as you know, they made one that said, well, to the unknown God, like just in case we've missed one, we better set up an altar and say this is for the God we don't know. And so when Paul gets to address some of these people at the top of Mars Hill, he is, tells them, look, I'll tell you about the gods you don't know. He is in verse 24. He's the God who, who made everything. In verse 26, he is the God who made everyone. And then Paul offers the cure for their idolatry. Acts 17, verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices, right? God is not any of these idols that you're making. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, that is he temporarily overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. God commands all men everywhere to repent. This is the cure for idolatry. He does not ask for repentance. He insists. He commands repentance because the day is coming when our idolatrous hearts are going to be judged on whether or not Jesus alone is the object of our affection and our attention and our worship. As this message spread, many, many of the people who heard it accepted the gospel and, and turned from the idols. In Athens, we have an example down in verse 34 of, of a couple of them named Dionysius and Damaris, along with others. In Ephesus, the, the gospel came to that idol-plagued metropolis and, and it turned their world upside down. We talked about this morning, Paul rented out a lecture hall and taught Jesus every day for the better part of three years. And as the gospel of Jesus confronted the insanity of idolatry, violence erupted. Look over at chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 24. And a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands." So that not only is this our craft in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, that her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worships. Right? He's saying if these Jesus folks keep at it pretty soon, nobody's going to buy our little silver shrines and our little statues of Diana anymore. Verse 28, when they heard these sayings, they were Full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. A citywide riot explodes. These rioters who were ready to sacrifice Paul on the, the altar of their own financial gain never bothered to consider whether it made any sense. Most of them didn't even understand what the riot was about. Verse 32 said some yelled one thing and some another, and they were all confused. But in verse 34, it doesn't stop. For two hours, they're screaming about their idol, great as Diana of the Ephesians. What the Christians in Ephesus would soon learn is that even after they repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus as their savior, they were not suddenly made perfect in this world. They were not safe from expressions of their own unrighteousness. For the Christians who were in Ephesus, it was one thing for them to stop buying shrines and statues from, from Demetrius and his silversmith guild, but the idol factory of their own heart never stopped production. Because long after this riot was over, they received a letter from the Apostle Paul warning them about idolatry. So let's talk about idolatry among the saints. Here's an excerpt from Paul's letter. Ephesians 5, 3-5. through He says, But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must also be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so writing to the Ephesians, Paul was not, Adding idolatry as one thing to a a big list of sins that he was describing. He was listing sins that they needed to avoid and summarized by the list, summarized the list by saying, look, that's, that's idolatry. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity. All of those are sins that are designed to remove God from the forefront of our minds and replace him with the worship of what we feel and what we want and what we say. The church at Ephesus was not alone in this. A similar warning is issued to the Colossians in Colossians 3.5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. To the church at Corinth, Paul wrote to them and said, flee from idolatry, right? run from it. Do you think that those people were actually kneeling down to, to statues and that's why Paul wrote to them? Or do you think he's talking about a different kind of idolatry? Because what we find in the Old Testament is that the people of God were consistently warned about worshiping false idols which were an expression of their own selfish desires. And it was a heart problem. Right? It was a heart problem. Listen, the the creator of heaven and earth was not threatened by some melted down gold or that half a tree that got cut down. But he openly tells us he is deeply grieved by the wandering of our heart that goes after such things. And what we find in the New Testament is a, a kind of shift of attention that really isn't much of a shift at all. Idolatry is not just something that's carved from a tree or shaped out of precious metal. We've gotten more sophisticated in our idols in any number of ways, showing that the affections of our heart were set anywhere other than God himself. Changing what it is that we're holding in our hands does not make it any less of a lie. It does not make it any less of a heart problem. And so Yahweh addressed the Old Testament people with the command, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You're not to make graven images. You're not to bow down to them and to worship them because I'm the Lord your God. And for some reason, we now read that and because we think, well, we're no longer crude that way, we are technologically advanced, we are sophisticated, we think that that command is somehow not relevant to us, but we're ignoring that Jesus summarized the command saying, well, here's what all of them are saying, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole strength. And anything that prevents us from doing that is idolatry. And so we can take what is good and make that into an idol because what we see as good soon becomes what we see as God even if we won't admit it. We can focus so much on politics that we're ready to sacrifice true righteousness in the name of advancement of our cause Idolizing some individual as our hope for the future. Our careers can become our defining characteristics because we love our career just maybe a little bit more than we love God. And we pour more effort into advancing ourselves than we do advancing the cause of Christ. We turn our hobbies into obsessions finding ways of spending our time to serve ourselves rather than serve the Lord. We think of our families and we think, well, we love our family as God has commanded us to love our family. But we don't think about the fact that every time we prioritize our family over worshiping the Lord, we're sending the message to that family that they are more important than God is. A message which can never be the expression of God's love. We can turn sports, whether playing it or watching it, into a time-consuming priority. We can take food, which God has given to sustain us, and instead of simply consuming it, we can become consumed by it. We need to realize that the temptation to idolatry is not safely tucked away back there in the history of Canaan. It is not fallen into ruins at the, the top of a hill in ancient Athens. The temptations toward idol worship is, is it's right here. It's in our hearts. And we're fooling ourselves if we ignore the caution of idolatry, because it doesn't now. It doesn't carry names like Haket and Ra and Dagon and Baal, because we've replaced it with idols called politics and careers and hobbies and family and sports and food and sex and power and greed. We are not in any way fundamentally different from Isaiah's example of the insane man who is so self-deceived that he can't bring himself to admit that that thing that he's holding on to and refuses to let go of, it is nothing but a lie. It is self-deception. And so now please look back at first John chapter 5. And maybe now we can understand that just because John has not used the word idol or idolatry up until the last verse, that doesn't mean that John's bringing up some new idea. Because you understand that the church that he's writing to, that he was part of, is the church at Ephesus. Many of the people who are reading John's letter could probably get up in the morning and walk to work and go right past Demetrius the silversmith's display window. They heard Paul's warning to put away idolatrous sins of the heart. And so John writes to them at at last and says in verse 21, little children. By the way, he is not talking down to them. He's not being condescending. You know that he loves them, but in John's mind there is this Christian reality that we are all growing and yet not grown up, right? We're always maturing but never mature. Like we can we can remodel a room over there and put in nice carpet and a rocking chair, but this sanctuary is the nursery John says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This isn't a command that's coming out of nowhere. It is, a, it is a summary of scripture. It is a summary of John's letter. He's been telling us all along in this letter, right? You, you can know. And at the end of the letter, we saw last week, he transitioned from, well, you can know to, to here's what you know. So in verse 17, you know, all unrighteousness is sin. In verse 18, you know whoever is born of God does not go on sinning. In verse 19, you know that you've been brought out of wickedness and now we are of God. In verse 20, we know the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding, like we really know. And what do we know according to verse 20? We know that we're in the truth. You're in Jesus. And he says at the end of verse 20, this is the true God and eternal life. And everything else that is pulling at the strings of your heart trying to get the attention and devotion that belongs to God alone, that's not how you spend your life because eternal life is not found in any of those things. The idle factory of our hearts is always inventing new ways of drawing our attention from him. But John says at the end of verse 20, he is the true God. He is eternal life. And so he concludes with this timely warning, right? Worship the true God. Worship the true God as you have come to know him through Jesus Christ. Give him your entire devotion because he's the true God and he is eternal life. And in this timely warning at the end, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols.